welcome to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm Bea Eggard. And throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. If you're brand new to us, welcome for the first time. This month's series is all about non-communicable diseases. And in this week's episode, we will be hearing about the experiences of patients who are living with non-communicable diseases in East Africa. And we will be hearing about the viewpoints of healthcare professionals about addressing NCDs in a more integrated way. We also have the honor of hearing from an NCD patient on her experience in Tanzania. But before we begin, Joseph Okebe is our co-host. Welcome, Joseph. How are you today? And tell us a bit about yourself. Thanks, Kim. It is a lovely warm summer day and really, really pleased to be here. I work at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. My background is in medicine and I've been involved in a number of clinical research that evaluating interventions that are addressing health challenges in low income countries. And non-communicable diseases or NCDs are really one of my research areas of interest and happy to be here. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Thank you very much for that description. And this episode's guests are Professor Rumaya and Detricia Apumba. Professor Rumaya has been involved in research on diabetes for many years, and he specializes on glucose tolerance and cardiovascular disease risk factors, but mainly focused on Indian communities living in Africa. We'll hear more about that in a moment. But before we begin, let's hear a little bit from our guests. Detricia, how are you today? And tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, I'm fine. How are you, Kim? I am very well, thank you. <laughs> well, um, I'm so glad to be here. Um, my name is Detricia Pamba, and um, I'm a multimedia journalist. I am 24. I've been living with diabetes for about 11 years. Um, I'm a type 1 diabetic. So basically, I got it when I was a baby. I was a teenager. I was 13 when I was diagnosed. Yeah, that's about it. I love the fact that you guys are doing this because I feel it's really important. A lot of people don't know a lot about diabetes, especially in the country. There's not much awareness. So I'm really glad to be here and to be able to like voice out and to tell my story. So thank you for having me. Thank you. You are the perfect guest, a media specialist and with great experience to share with us. And thank you for sharing your story here today. Tell us a bit more about the diagnosis process, if you don't mind. So the funny thing is I was just in school. I was studying in a boarding school and um, I, I just started, I wasn't feeling well. I was feeling really thirsty. I'd wake up at night going to the washroom like five, ten times. And I was like, no, this is not something that is normal because I, I wasn't like this before. And uh, I'd be so thirsty. I would drink water, but it's never enough. And I just went to tell the school nurse that I wasn't feeling well. So she said, okay, let's take you to a hospital. And it took me like about two days to be taken to an actual hospital. And I did random tests and I was diagnosed with diabetes. It was as high as 28.1 when I was diagnosed. And the nurse was just surprised. She said, you're such a young girl. How is the blood sugar this high? And the only thing I knew about you know, diabetes is that my, my grandfather and my aunt had it. So in my head, I was like, okay, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. They all died. So I just started crying. And I think to a lot of people, when you tell them about diabetes, they'll tell you um, it's a disease that cannot be treated. So it's 
really scary. So for a young girl like me to be diagnosed by then, I was so scared. But um, fortunately, uh, I went to meet Dr. Kaushik. He was uh, recommended to me by, by one of the nurses. So um, we traveled from a different city to come see Dr. Kaushik. And yeah, from there, I think I could say he saved my life. Thank you very much. It's almost like you led into Professor Kaushik's introduction there. That's really helpful to understand that must have been a very frightful experience being a teenager, which is also a difficult time in any woman's life. So thank you for sharing that. Professor, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do and also your relationship with Detricia. Kim and Joseph, first of all, thank you for hosting us and uh, Detricia. Thank you for, for joining this, uh, this call. It is really a pleasure to be on this one. Uh, I've been uh, a clinician since 1982. I have just finished my 40 years at the hospital where I'm working as a clinician and as a specialist. And uh, I started out in 82 uh, medical officer. And in 1986, I joined the uh, Mwimbili uh, University. At that time, it was known as University of Dar es Salaam for my master's training in internal medicine. And after that, my external examiner was Professor George Alberti from Newcastle. And he, he invited me to spend time with him to do my diabetes and endocrinology in the University of Newcastle. And at that time, that was a citadel of diabetes care. And uh, I spent one and a half years in Newcastle upon time, came back and then started working at the same hospital. And since then, I have been uh, looking at patients, working with patients with diabetes, but in addition to diabetes, I'm also been working with all the patients related to internal medicine. In between, in 95, 96, we, when we had an HIV epidemic, uh, we were very few physicians in the country. So we had to go and train ourselves into HIV medicine. And I got an opportunity and scholarship to go and study at Northwestern University in Chicago, where I did about six months of training on HIV medicine. So when I came back, I was managing communicable and non-communicable disease. So when you talk about integration, I think integration in my clinical practice started in 96, Joseph, for your information. So that, that has been a long, long time ago. And uh, my research work basically is a part of my dissertation. What we started noticing is that within the Indian community in Dar es Salaam, there were some different sub-communities and what we found that their presentation patterns were different. And that's where I started looking at different uh, Indian communities and looking at their glucosterones and cardiovascular risk factors. And from that dissertation, master's dissertation, I, I went ahead with a lot of research in diabetes and cardiovascular and HIV medicines. And since then, I think research has been my patient in addition to my clinical medicine. Yeah. What a long and industrious career that is. I think it's really interesting that you are looking at the role of ethnic differences within NCD care and, and other care by the sound of it as well. Could you just tell us a bit more? Is that normal? Is a lot, are a lot of researchers looking at that or is that very specific to you? Uh, no, I think, I think what was there that we identified that there was probably within, when you say, when you clump a community and you say this is a nation community, Within Asian community, there are a lot of sub-communities and each one of them have, have a different sort of a background, socioeconomic background, and the genetic background also is different. And that is what we were actually highlighting. And when we said that we clumps a community together, I think there are differences which we need to observe. And I think that's what we highlighted in that component. Currently, we have been working on quite a lot on implementation of the program 
And as Joseph mentioned, I've been working with the Liverpool School, looking at the integrated care and putting a scientific component to it. Because as I said, my clinical integration started in 96. As an individual, as a clinician, I would see HIV patients, I would see TB patients, I would see diabetes patients. But now we are actually doing a scientific study to look at whether this integration, when you have a one-stop clinic, is it going to make any change in the quality of care, whether it is going to make any economic impact, whether it is going to improve the quality of care, and those are the components which we are looking at. Thank you very much. We've heard a lot about integration over the last three episodes, so listeners do tune into those if you want to hear in more detail what integration is. Before we move on, and Joseph will explore that research a little bit further, Detricia, I wonder, could you tell us what is it like being a patient where you are? Well, um, actually, before I say that, I'd like to say uh, today I actually published an article um, where I spoke about my journey with diabetes. And uh, on the front cover, you'd see me and Professor Kaushik on the Citizen newspaper. And I basically spoke about my journey with diabetes. And when, when I was firstly diagnosed, um, I don't think people knew what to do with me. From the family, from the nurses at school, from the students that I lived with, to even my family. So um, basically, I, I felt frustrated. I felt, I felt frustrated because um, here I am, I, I have a sweet tooth. So I, I like soda and fruits and juice and all that. And all of a sudden, if somebody sees me anywhere close to a soda, they'll, they'll just be yelling, stop doing that. You cannot do that. <laughs> Everybody around me, the same things that I'm not supposed to have. So just imagine you're used to eating with everyone. And right now, everybody is kind of taking you away. And they're like, okay, you take this, you take this. But no, you're diabetic, you take this. Um, everybody was just like, uh, for me, you know, as a teenager, right now I don't understand where they're coming from. But by then I was like, no, I, I don't feel comfortable watching everybody doing things that I want to do. And I'm not allowed to do them, but they do they do that. So it was a little bit frustrating. But then as, as I kept living, I came to realize that I was actually privileged that I had hospital care. I could see Dr. Kaushik almost every month. I had an insurance card, but then it was astonishing to me to find out that there's a lot of people out there that they don't even have a medical card, so they can't really access, you know, hospital treatments. And uh, insulin is quite expensive in the country, not just insulin. Actually, in Tanzania, they call diabetes a disease of the rich. And that is something I said in the article, it's because everything that you're supposed to, to do or to use is quite expensive. From the food is expensive. Insulin is expensive. You know, the machine is expensive. The contours are expensive. So everything is just expensive. So I just try to imagine for somebody who doesn't have, you know, medical insurance, how are they living? So I, I started to find these people and just to have their voice. I think this is a second series to my story that is going to come out, you know, the voices of these people. But I could say uh, for me, it is, it has been hard, but my hurdles are, are not as much as great as those who like don't have the access that I have. So yeah, still a big prob problem in the country. Thanks very much. So it sounds like this disease of the rich, sometimes we think of that because it comes from being rich. But actually what you're saying is if you have diabetes, you need to be rich to be able to access all the care. Um, so in terms of treatment for our listeners, can you kind of give us a picture about what kind of ongoing treatment you require? So um, basically right now I, I use I use some insulin injections 
So I use uh, Mixtad and Atropid. I'll use Mixtad in the morning and in the evening, and I'll have Atropid in the afternoon. So I'd say I've been a rogue patient. I think Dr. Kalshi can attest to that. I'm one of the crazy ones. <laughs> I, I think I've given him a tough time <laughs> into the price of rice. So I know I've given Dr. Kalshi a hard time. But then that comes from, you know, you know, being young, you still want to fit in. You you want to be like everybody else. This is the age when they call, you know, the life of the party. So yeah, I still want to fit in. I still want to go out and have some drinks. Sometimes I'll text Dr. Kalshi and be like, Prof, can I, can I, can I have one glass of wine? <laughs> so yeah. But um, that's the injections that I take. But recently, I also I also got some medications that I'll be taking for about a month because my blood sugar levels were not quite okay for the last three months. So you can imagine for a patient that has been inside, you know, having the disease for 11 years, plus the medical care, I'm still not on the level where I could say, okay, my diabetes is controlled 100%. So it is still hard to manage. Okay, thank you for sharing that with us. We really appreciate it. And I think that gives us an idea of how you were diagnosed the treatment and the wonderful relationship and the importance of having a a doctor that you can trust and call to see if uh, you're allowed a glass of wine. On that note, I'll hand over to Joseph to understand kind of wider views on patients. Thanks, Kim. And uh, yeah, thanks, Zutusha. I really enjoyed listening to that story. I'm going to probably start with you, Prof, picking up on some of the comments and Zutusha's story. So could you just paint us a picture of the impact that, you know, NCDs like diabetes and all that has on patient lives from your experience managing people with these conditions? Thank you, Joseph, for asking that. I think managing people with diabetes, when I started in diabetes, I was told that I'm going into a field of medicine where only rich will come and the poor will never come. And uh, when I started the clinical practice, I noticed that it was a simple watchman or a simple driver or a simple person working at the lowest end of the socioeconomic status who was presenting with diabetes. And unfortunately, because there was that perception that this is diabetes is the disease of the rich, never people never thought about it, you know. So I think that was first impact I had. Second impact I had was when I saw these children with type 1 diabetes. And the thing which, which really moved me was a paper from John Yudkin saying that a child with type 1 diabetes in Africa does not survive more than six months. And uh, there was a paper there uh, in the BMJ or Lancet, I don't remember well, but that has a huge, huge impact on what I thought I should be doing. And in year 2005, with the support, because I was within the international diabetes, I basically, from the Life for a Child, which was a program which was started by the Australian group, uh, we started looking at having donated insulin for children with type 1 diabetes. And I remember that in 2005, there were only 35 children attending a clinic in Muimbili, which was the National Referral Hospital with type 1 diabetes. And we started sourcing out donated insulin for them. And there was one family from a very absolutely rural area, and father had three children, and all of them had type 1 diabetes, and he could not afford insulin. And his wish was that, you know, when one died, then he, he felt that, okay, his cost burden had gone down. And that was having a profound effect on what we were doing in clinical practice. And since then, we have basically worked as a Tanzania Diabetes Association. We have started working with children with type 1 diabetes. And we have, within the funding of changing diabetes in children and life for a child, 
We have been providing free insulin, free glucometers, and free strips to more than 3,800 children whom we have now in the whole program, in the whole country. So that has been one component which is there. Second is when you talk about NCDs, I think people consider it as a lifestyle disease, but I think in addition to lifestyle, I feel that people actually go into a state of a poverty when they have to manage this as optimally. And uh, recent data shows that if you have one member in the family with NCD, then 57% of your income basically goes in managing these people with NCD. And this is not only a direct cost, but there are also a lot of indirect costs, which has got a huge impact. So I think what I feel, having worked 40 years in this setting, I feel that for us, the agenda should be prevention, prevention, and prevention. And I think that prevention, unfortunately, is not fashionable. You see, when you tell somebody not to drink his Coca-Cola, or when you tell somebody not to eat your beef burger or a vegetable burger, not to eat your chips, you are not liked by many, you know, including the Tricia. But then you find that, you know, that is the way to go. So I think the clinical practice has to have a component. As a clinician, you have to have a component of what you can do to prevent, but how do you optimize your management? But at the same time, having that touch with your patients so that your patients, especially with chronic disease, sometimes it is not only, I don't think it's only the medicines they come for. They sometimes come for some sort of a discussion of what they would like to do, how they would like to do it. So it is also a psychosocial support, which actually goes a long way to make sure that they get better control and they are much more better aligned with the medications you are giving. Really, really important point you mentioned there that it's not just about the medications and uh, for health workers, they have to look at the broader problems. And uh, maybe just to, you know, uh, push you a bit on this one, you, you've mentioned that you moved from 35 to 3,800. And one of the challenges we know with uh, managing in health systems in Africa is just the sheer number of, uh, of people who are coming to clinics and are requiring care. How has that changed, you know, over time? And, uh, you know, how does that, how has that influenced the way you care for your patients? Yeah, so I think there are three things which has happened. One is as a, as a part of the Tanzania Diabetes Association, we have been working with the Ministry of Health since year 2003, setting up diabetes services in the public health sector. And we have been working at the zonal, the regional levels, the district level, and currently we are implementing a program whereby we are going right up to the health center level. That is one component. There's an overall diabetes program, but now it is an integrated program where we have also the NCD clinics. Number two is that we have established sentinel sites. For, so we have over the whole country, we have about 38 sites whereby we have trained healthcare providers in management of type 1 diabetes. And these children, what you are talking about, 3,800, are distributed all over the country. And we provide them training, retraining component, and we provide continuous sort of a enhanced training for them. And we still feel that out of every child, we are still diagnosing with type 1 diabetes. There are one or two out into a rural area who are being misdiagnosed. For example, in the 1990s and 2000s, children with type 1 diabetes would come with a DKA. The first differential diagnosis would be pneumocystis pneumonia because it was HIV-related and HIV burden was extremely high. The second diagnosis would be severe falciparum malaria because with severe falciparum malaria, you could get the respiratory symptoms and electrolytic imbalances. Nobody thought about diabetes at that time. 
You see, and this is actually still happening in some cases whereby the index, index of suspicion has to be there, that, that as a clinician, you need to have that index of suspicion that what is happening. And the same thing is happening in adults. It's not only children, but because in adults, insulin is life-saving life and it is an essential drug. Without insulin, they will die. I think that is where we want to now look at how do we improve that. And then uh, with Natricia and all these youngsters who we have started with the clinics, you find that they also formed what we call as a Tanzania Diabetes Youth Alliance. And all these children whom we started with in 2005, 2010, 2011, many of them have become professionals, some have become doctors, some have become mass media experts like Natricia. So they are now growing up. And I think having gone through those pains of initial program, I think they understand what they need to do with the children who are coming along the line. So I think it is something which is now moving at its own pace. Of course, our challenge still is having a good control of diabetes and those complications. And sometimes we have a moral question. You see, a moral question is, are we really making these children survive so that they have more complications because their blood glucose control is not good? Or are you trying to improve the quality of care by having a tightened control? So those are the questions you have. Wow. Wow. I think um, we probably would need to have a lot more time to explore this moral question because it is quite important, really. You know, just to mention, like, when I was actively practicing, especially with deliveries where there are a lot of complications and the baby has survived, but, you know, there's always that risk of long-term care. You do find yourself in those really, really tricky points. So I'm going to come back to you, Patricia, uh, just to point out for, for the audience that, you know, Prof, you mentioned DKA, which is, uh, you know, short form of diabetic ketoacidosis, essentially where it is a sort of a, a complication of very high blood glucose, which is not properly controlled or managed, and it can be, it can be lethal. So, Patricia, so Prof has mentioned quite a few things about the impact and in a, a lot of things that he says are happening. So let's hear from your point of view. Are, are they doing enough or are there other areas that you think they should do better? Um, <laughs> thank you for the question. Uh, first, before that, um, I raised my hand a little bit. I had a question for Prof. Um, you know, he said something about misdiagnosis. And uh, I was just wondering, you know, um, for the past like two years, we've been having, you know, covid And um, I know there was a lot of problems with that because when you have DKA, you you can you can go to the hospital you can't breathe and that's kind of the symptom of covid so how did they handle that jose would you like me to answer that <laughs> please go ahead <laughs> we'll put okay. you on the spot no i think i think uh, with covid we had uh, at least at my hospital i think initially people were frightened of covid when covid came in and our our patient flow at the hospital went down and people were being managed at home we really don't know how many people died at home not coming to the hospital, being frightened of COVID. But most of our COVID comorbidities were related to people with diabetes who were poorly controlled. At the same time, we had a lot of, lot of adults with type 2 diabetes who had COVID, and suddenly their glucose went to 30, 40. Even children with type 1 diabetes, their glucose went to 30, 40. And if you, did, if you see, Joseph, there have been a papers which have said that with COVID, there has been an effect on the pancreatic beta cells which basically go into a sort of a failure during that provision, there's a transitory period when they are not able to produce insulin at all. And you find that you had to use about 100 to 110 units of insulin to control those blood glucose. Otherwise, 
you would manage the person with COVID, but he would die of diabetes and his complication. So I think that is where uh, I, I agree with Patricia that out into the rural areas and semi-urban areas, I really don't know what has happened there. But I can tell you that unless you are a person with an experience to manage people with diabetes with such high doses of insulin, I, I think that you would not be able to get over that crisis. Brilliant. Okay. okay um, back back to your, to your question. Yes, <laughs> your, it, yes, thank it you. Is, yes. Um, to my point of view, I think um, the doctors are trying to do their best. I think uh, you know doctors like Professor Kaushik are doing their best to help us get get through this world drama because diabetes is really it's dramatic. I could say. <laughs> As you know, my the professor said, I, and as I said before, I am very fortunate that I'm I'm actually treated by Professor Kaushik. So I, I know I'm in I'm in great hands to the extent that if I'm I'm sick a little bit and I just know anything might happen to me, I'm just you guys have to take me to Professor Kaushik. That's all I know because I know as long as I'm I am on his hands, I I am safe. But just because it it has been. It has been that way with me. Doesn't mean in general that's how it is for everyone. A lot still has to be done because let's say the access to insulin itself. You might go to the hospital and I'm, I usually take uh, medications for a, an entire month. But then you might go to the hospital and the medicine is not enough. So when the medicine is not enough, when the insulin in store is not enough, what they have to do is they have to cut off your dose. I mean, if you're supposed to take it for a month, now you have to take it for a week or two weeks so that at least in the next week or two weeks, everybody has some medicine to use while we keep waiting for more medicine to come. So you need that, that is what it happens. And you really, you understand that because at the end of the day, we all want to survive. So you have to give each patient just enough for them to survive for maybe the next week or two weeks while you wait for more medicine to come. So that's a problem. And that is for me who has access. Like when I reach the hospital, I know Professor will make sure that I live with some sort of insulin. He won't let me go. But what happens to government hospitals where, you know, they'll tell you just go by outside. What if that person doesn't have enough money because it's quite expensive, you see? So um, it's still challenging. A lot has to be done. I think um, in the hospitals, they do a lot. But then outside, what about the people who don't have diabetes? What do they know about it? People are not aware about diabetes. They don't know how to treat a person that has diabetes. They don't know um, if I just fall down right now, what should I do to this person? They don't know about it. Even those people who know, they don't know enough. I remember when I was diabetic, they told me, you don't have to work. Don't do any house chores. We don't want you carrying anything. Now imagine you're asking yourself, how is this related to diabetes? Before I didn't know, but right now I understand that actually I needed to do some exercises, but everybody or diabetes, and I think a lot has to be done, just like how they did, you know, campaign, I think people were, were talking so much about it. I think that needs to be done when it comes to diabetes, because the problem of awareness and knowledge is not just in the villages, even those who are living in a big city like the rest of where, where I'm from, they also know nothing about the disease. Everybody will be asking you. People are calling me and they'll be like, Patricia was just recently diagnosed. Can you tell me what should I do with my insulin? Just give you the right medicines. So people know nothing about it. And I think um, that's where we really lag behind. Wow. Thanks. Thanks, Patricia. It, it's it's really a very valid point that you've mentioned there. And from what you've sort of described, one really has a role to play here, especially, you know, either the general public, people with these conditions, healthcare workers, that one really needs to see themselves as important stakeholders here, which is quite brilliant. Um, 
So um, coming back to you, uh, Prof. Kashik, um, you've mentioned a number of these, you know, initiatives that that is going on to supporting people with diabetes, and particularly you you said that you've been integrating your care for 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 let's say since 1996. Yes. So. Probably I would ask you this question in two ways. One, what has been your experience and what would be the advice you would, you know, give to fellow healthcare professionals about the values of integrating care? Yeah. Uh, Joseph, thank you for asking that question. I think, uh, first of all, as a, as a professional working for 40 years, I think I've seen four decades of medicine, the way it has changed. And, uh, I think uh, when we started, we needed to make a diagnosis on a bedside. We hardly had any tools of making a diagnosis with the laboratory or radiology. After 10 years, you know, you would start using your stethoscope to make a complete diagnosis uh, with your clinical examination, come to a clinical diagnosis and start management while access to laboratory and access to radiologists, especially in our situation, was a challenge. What you are seeing now is that we are becoming digital doctors, you see. You see more than 50% of the doctors don't even carry a stethoscope these days, you see. So if you go with a cough, they'll say, go get an X-ray done and come back to me. If you say you've got a palpitation, they'll say, go and do an ECG and echo and come back to me, you see. And if you say you've got, uh, you got a arm which is chest, which is paining, they'll say, go and get an X-ray done and come. So we are, we are doing what I call as a fishing in the ocean, trying to look for a fish so that we can basically cook it and eat it, you know. And I think, I think what I see is that we have to go down to the basics that we need to have. One, we need to talk to our patients. Patients are not commodities. Patients are, are human beings. And I think if you talk to them, having talking to them, having listening to them, having to understand them, I think that's 50% of the treatment, you see. And then once you do a clinical diagnosis, or clinical examination and you come to a diagnosis, I think you're building faith in your patient to understand that, okay, this has been a, is, has been something which I've undergone, I understand, and this is what you do. And then when you, then you prescribe medications, the compliance is almost 100%. But if a patient comes to your office before the patient has finished his history or her history, you already written down what investigation you want to do. And when they come with the investigation, you have looked at your digital computer, seen what the results are, and then you say, this is the medicine you are going to take. I think the compliance is an issue. So my message is very simple, is that you have patients, we have to treat them as human beings, we have to manage them, you have to understand them, and you have to treat them accordingly. Each one has its own unique way in which they're present. And your clinical medicine, your question, your answers, how you manage this patient is the key if you are to be successful as a clinician and to make sure that your patients actually benefit from what your knowledge is. Second thing is that integration. If I'm a diabetes expert and if a patient with diabetes comes and he has got something else besides diabetes, I should not be pushing him straight to another consultant. I should, first of all, be trying to see. So what we call as a multimobility, or a patient with diabetes might have hypertension, might have a renal problem, might have an eye problem. I need to understand what other problems are there. I need to manage them before I refer them to a specialist. Just now we have become too compatible. We have got too much or too many of the compartments. If it is something with diabetes, the comes to me and says, my heart is beating fast. 
you know, I don't know whether she has found a new boyfriend or the heart is beating because of the new boyfriend or it is, it is because of hypertension. So without finding out, I just tell her, go to the cardiologist and the cardiologist will say, go and do an ECG and echo. And you see, those, those are the things. So what I feel that the integration is basically you being a clinician, you need to make a diagnosis of what the person has is an individual, is not a commodity. And with those multiple components which are there, how do you manage them? That is what you need to guide them. Otherwise, we are just confusing our patients and they go from door to door, sometimes ending up seeing 20 different specialists, but at the end of the day, not getting managed for what they are, they are suffering from. Wow, thanks so much. Really, really important. I, I actually sorry, wrote down this comment you mentioned that patients are not commodities. Patients are actually people that need to be listened to. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, back to you, Kim. Thanks very much. So, Professor, what I'm hearing is we need to rehumanize care. I think this is a very poignant message. And our uh, whole podcast is about how do we connect with people and communities in a much stronger way than we have been in the past. What advice would you give to others? You've mentioned that we need to listen to patients and rehumanize and listen to the whole story. What message would you give to researchers so that they can respond to patients? Uh, if you ask me, <laughs> there are three types of researchers. Uh, there's a researcher who is looking for, for papers, being in the journal, being cited, and wants to do the PhD, and that is all, and wants to go into an academia without any translation of that research into the real practice. A second researcher is the one who, who basically identifies the problem, having done the clinical work, identify that this is a challenge and this is what we need to do to improve the patient care. So that is, I would call as a translation research. And the third research is you are actually working with the health system and trying to see how better and what better care can you give to your clients or to your patients and overall improving the overall quality of care. So for me, those are the three criteria of three different compartments of research. Thank you very much. That's uh, very interesting. So you have the publisher, the problem maker and solution finder, and then the more holistic health systems approach. And are you suggesting that it is a combination of all three of those? Sorry? No, are I, you... <laughs> I think, I think uh, you see, I think if you, if, you, if, you are, if you are serious with your work, and I think if you have identified a problem, and if that problem needs to do some research to overcome and to try to find a solution, I think success will come on its own. You know, I, I don't think you have to run after the success. Success comes with what you do and with what your actions are. And second thing, when you talk about being cited in a journal, this is good for people in the academia. It's very important. But I think at the end of the day, there is some what we call as a basic science research, which probably helps to improve the clinical care. And then there's this care, which we call as a translation research. So I think all has to be taken into consideration together, trying to see what you want to actually do and how you want to achieve and change what, what you find is an issue. Perfect. Thank you very much. Detricia, tell us, what do we need to do to make connections with you and other patients much better? Give us practical tips. We're listening. Well, um, what I'd like to say is, you know, you know, diabetes is not like a one size fits all. 
I don't know where you all conduct these researches, but I, I just believe there is a diverse amount of patients out there and each they will need different kind of approaches, different kind of managements. But then there's one thing that every diabetic patient will be happy about, and that's to find a definite cure. I, I just believe everybody's gonna be happy about it. But then um, just try to see as researchers, how can you connect to different kind of patients, you know, from different kind of backgrounds and just really understand where they're coming from, um, how they got diabetic, how they're diagnosed and how you can be able to manage these kind of people from, from different type of backgrounds. Because whatever it is that you're going to put on paper has to take all these people into consideration. And one other important thing, as the um, professor said, emotional connection. You know, you just have to, to, to connect with your patients, connect with the people that you want to research on, and just make sure they can be able to, like, speak more and freely about what they're going through and what they think you could do to help them. And, um, yeah, I think that's it. Thank you. I think that's a wonderful place to end. So two calls here, rehumanize care and make that emotional connection. Researchers and scientists, these are great advice for you and care professionals as well. Thank you to our guests and thank you to Joseph and thank you to our listeners for listening for the first time. Or again, do like, share, subscribe as much as possible. We want to keep these podcasts and these information sharing going so your, your support will help. Thank you and bye. Bye.